From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Health insurance costs will go up an average of 4.9% in 2021, according to new data from the Office of Personnel Management. The Acting Director for Healthcare and Insurance at OPM, Lori Bodenheimer, says her agency figures that number based on the plans employees are in now and what those premiums will be next year. Federal Times reports Bodenheimer says after employees switch to different plans, that number is likely to be lower. The judge hearing the Amazon Web Services protest against the Defense Department on the Jedi cloud computing case has issued new deadlines. Amazon has until October 23rd to file an amended complaint. Microsoft and the Pentagon have to file new motions to dismiss the case by November 6th. NextGov reports other actions in the case could stretch now through next February. The Army's new chief data officer is in place tonight. David Markowitz will take over the job from Greg Garcia. Markowitz comes to the job from the office of the Army G8. He was chief of staff there. C4ISRNet reports Garcia will continue as acting Army CIO. The directors of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, National Security Agency, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and National Counterintelligence and Security Center say they're collaborating on election security. FCW reports Robert Kalaski, the director of the National Risk Management Center at CISA, says there are no sustained campaigns against election infrastructure right now that could impact election results. Suzanne Spaulding, senior advisor at, of Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former undersecretary for the National Protection Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. Suzanne, it's great to see you. Thank you for coming back. Uh, your former organization, now known as CISA, is part of this, this circle. How are they working together? How are they collaborating on election security? Francis, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. I, I thought the video was really an impressive uh, joint effort of uh, these four key agencies coming together to present a unified message to the American public. And I, I think it's an indication uh, that they are working together uh, behind the scenes. And certainly each of them is doing for the integrity of the election. I thought uh, Bill Evanina was terrific. Uh, our national counterintelligence executive, our top counterintelligence official, uh, talking about uh, the various things that our adversaries are trying to do. And he went through a list of the activities uh, that they are seeing. And I thought that was important to put in front of the American public. But he, too, concluded that uh, our election system is resilient, our system is resilient and uh, that they continue to assess that it would be extremely difficult for an adversary to interfere or manipulate uh, the system in a way that changes the uh, vote totals. So I thought that was an important message. Chris Krebs, uh, my successor there now, now at CISA, uh, I thought was great talking about, and they have been promoting this idea of the 3P voter, uh, that voters need to, uh, they need to participate, sign up as poll watchers, vote, they need to plan, they need to have a plan for how they're going to vote. And most importantly, he pointed out what we've been hearing, which is we may not know the results on the evening of Election Day uh, because, uh, in large part, because so many ballots are being mailed in. And, and he said, and that's okay. 
In other words, it's not a system, uh, an indication that that somehow uh, something nefarious is happening. And I thought those messages of reassurance to the American public coming from all four of those leaders uh, was really uh, very important. Uh, Chris Krebs said, uh, my confidence in the security of your vote has never been higher. The, the video that you're referencing is about nine minutes long. It features those leaders that I, I uh, mentioned at the top of our conversation, Suzanne. And you're right, it's a very reassuring message because in the course of the nine minutes, each of those speakers says specific things about what the organization that that leader leads is doing to provide election security. And so I took that as not just a reassuring message to a voter like me, but as a message directed at potentially somebody who wants to try to mess with the election too. Am I off base there? No, that's a really good point, Francis. I think that's exactly right. Uh, and, and I think it's accurate. I mean, unlike uh, 2016, we, you know, everybody is, uh, has been aware of the risks uh, to elections uh, uh, for at least four years now. And a ton of work has been done. Uh, and I think it is important to let any bad actors, domestic or foreign, know that systems are in place to detect that activity and uh, and take action. How much is, how important is attribution in that detection, Suzanne, in learning whether we ever know it publicly or not, that uh, who it is that may have tried to do something? Attribution is important for a couple of reasons. Um, it, it's not necessarily important right off the bat to, to try to shut down or stop the activity necessarily. Um, but it becomes important, both in terms of obviously trying to impose any consequences. You've got to know who it is that you would be imposing consequences on. And also, focus groups have, have shown that the American public, it makes a difference to them uh, if they know that, that, for example, information is coming to them from Russia. Uh, they are more likely to discount it. And so attribution can be important. We have a little bit more than a minute left. How in your, in, how do you think the threat landscape has changed 2016 to today? Just because we, uh, the, these four leaders put this video out doesn't mean the bad guys are gonna go, oh, okay, well, we won't bother then. They're still gonna try. How will they try differently, do you think, than they have in the past? Well, we've certainly seen um, in the disinformation and information operations space a, 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 an evolution in techniques, and that's not surprising. Um, so we're seeing an increased use in fake uh, local media, fake accounts um, that, that are uh, groups that, that are posing as local news media. And that's because they know that the U.S. Uh, public takes, uh, attaches more credibility to local news. So that's really troubling, um, and, but something that has been detected and, and is understood and is being, um, I think, rate, we're rate working on raising awareness of that. Um, and we're also seeing, uh, you know, and, and really an amplification of domestic voices. I think that's the biggest shift that we've seen over the last four years. And, uh, and that makes it a bigger challenge for uh, the platforms uh, to deal with and for policymakers to address. Suzanne Spaulding, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Thank you. Up next, the Asuma hack strategy pays off as hackers strike again. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what your agency should do now to prevent cyber attacks later. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says hackers have struck a federal agency. CISA says the hackers may have gotten in through a government VPN server. Bob Bigman's founder of 2B Secure, former Chief Information Security Officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Bob, I quote from CISA's analysis report, federal agency compromised by malicious cyber actor. CISA became aware via Einstein of a potential compromise of a federal agency's network. Is that maybe the silver lining in this cloud? Einstein works, it seems. It worked in this case, and that's, the, yeah, you're right. That is the silver lining. Uh, but there's still too many dark clouds here <laughs> uh, that really paint a bad a bad picture for federal cybersecurity. Uh, it just just you know, if, I wish they would turn that document, that report, which I thought was very well done, into legislation, because you know these organizations still don't even do cyber hygiene very well. Uh, that's that's just uh, unacceptable. Well, to that end, uh, the, uh, the report I thought was striking and, and worth discussing just because it walks one through the step-by-step -step process that CISA undertook and that the hackers undertook to get into the system. Um, but you're right, we get to the end and we get to the recommendations. I'm no cyber expert, but to me, the prevention recommendations, deploy an enterprise firewall and block unused ports, strike me as things that I think we've been talking about for a long time. Did I miss something? Uh, no, you didn't miss anything. Um, but again, the, those, those recommendations I think are accurate. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure in this case that this and all of the other agencies have firewalls. I think the point they're really making here is the firewall policies perhaps are not very um, uh, strong and you know, probably don't provide the protection that you need to because the other recommendation was, well, you, know, you also have to turn off the ports <laughs> that you're not using to communicate with uh, your organizations and your uh, employees over the internet. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very damning. And again, it just points to this, this ongoing and, and very frustrating um, uh, response to people who work with the government and are trying to do the right thing. Uh, that they, 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 they need to understand their number one risk is hacking. It's external hacking. And they need to focus laser-like attention on that. And for a variety of reasons, you know, uh, they don't. I'm puzzled by some of the additional recommendations. There's a list of, it looks like six or seven things that SIS is suggesting. And again, some of these seem to be things that I figured was already happening. Implementing multi-factor authentication, especially for priv privileged accounts. Keep software up to date. We're still telling people to keep software up to date in 2020? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is because you have very, uh, you know, old uh, systems still in the U.S. government that uh, the vendors don't need to necessarily provide updates for that are found to have been uh, full of vulnerabilities. Um, another part of it, you know, they don't use the, I see this a lot in the government, they just don't even use some of the tools available in the marketplace now and have been available for like the last five years to do uh, automated patch management and to do better uh, endpoint detection and response. Um, and I think that's the message that's that's being written in the, into these uh, recommendations. And I wondered if that was not maybe the underlying message here. Uh, CISA and other cybersecurity organizations as enterprises and individuals like you have been saying for a long time agencies should, if they have not already, move to the default posture of assuming a breach. If one is assuming a breach, it strikes me this is a tremendously instructive document as to the type of breach that one should assume. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, no, that's that's right on. And um, I, I wish they would approach cybersecurity uh, with that attitude. You know, I, I think part of the problem is there's so many conflicting messages today in, in federal cyber uh, security. Um, you know, now they're in the Senate, they just had this this risk, which is, you know, you have to use a risk, automated quantified risk measurement type of tool. You have to use the CSF. No, you have to use the NIST 853. No, you have to be FISMA compliant. I mean, there's just a cacophony of messaging going on today to the to the federal government CISO. And it's a shame because what they really need to do, as I said before, is focus on two things, hacking and hygiene. You get those right and you pretty much, you know, did your job. Are some of those pieces of legislation or some of those orders um, at odds with each other, Bob? Um, they're not necessarily at odds, but what they are, what they do is they diffuse the message to a point where it becomes difficult for the government CISO and the auditing organizations in those agencies to frankly determine priorities, right? And they're, they're constantly moving from one to three to four back to two to four, and they don't have enough energy and, and money and resources to spend on the, the, as I said before, the two critical issues that they face today, which is, is hacking and hygiene. You have said before that agencies have plenty of tools, both available to them and actually tools that they have purchased or subscribed to. How do you sort through that to get to those two main points that you're talking about? It would strike me if agencies have lots of tools, they should probably have the tools they need to do, to do those two things. Yeah, you know, I, I just talked last week to a, a, some uh, friends of mine at Microsoft, and they were telling me about how frustrated they are <laughs> in the federal government trying to convince uh, the agencies to just turn on the capabilities that they provide both in their in their endpoints, in their servers, and in their cloud offerings that, that the government bought. The government paid for these tolls when you bought your license, right? And they, they you know, they have to be very careful. They're, they're supporting the customer, but they're, they're very frustrated, and I've heard this from other companies as well, is that they, they won't turn on and utilize the tools already provided, and that's, that's horrible. Bob, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. Sure, thank you. Up next, record-breaking spending at civilian agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where the money went in fiscal 20 and how much will keep flowing in 21. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The coronavirus response has contract spending at a record high of $228 billion in fiscal year 2020. Civilian federal contract, uh, contract spending is up about 17% from last fiscal year. Rob Levinson, senior defense analyst at Bloomberg Government. Uh, Rob, it's great to see you. I don't think anybody's surprised by the fact that agencies are spending more than ever. But some names jumped out at me as kind of, oh, yeah, moments. I won't say aha exactly. You write, as it has since at least 2015, McKesson Corporation led the pack among all civilian contractors in fiscal 2020 with $6.8 billion in contracting. Where's that money going? That's not a name that people think about when you think about the big names in GovCon. Right. It isn't a big name, but it is a big. Basically, it's pharmaceutical distribution for the Department of Veterans Affairs. And McKesson also has big DOD contracts as well for the same services. We don't have the numbers yet for 2020 for DOD, but uh, McKesson, you know, the, the drug contracts for VA are huge every year, and McKesson has been on top 
at least since 2015 and probably before that. I, I looked back as far as 2015, but it, it's always up there. Uh, you write in this analysis, the top small business was Moderna with nearly a billion for its HHS work. And you write another point in the analysis, Moderna is not a company that traditionally has done a lot of business with the government, is it? Right. No. In previous years, I, I have no contract data for Moderna doing business with the federal government. This is the first time. And yeah, all of a sudden, because of COVID, it's a billion dollars for, uh, you know, vaccine development. So so this is a, a, you know, COVID is providing some opportunities for companies that previously hadn't done business with the federal government. Does it appear that the federal government is prepared to do business with those companies? One of the topics of conversation in this space all the time, and it's primarily on the defense side, but it's also on the civilian side, is the, the government trying to make it easier for companies that don't traditionally do business with the federal government to do so. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, four of the HHS contracts were about a billion dollars each, and they were using other transaction authority, OTAs, which, as you know, and most people uh, know, are, you know, they sort of waive a lot of rules of the normal federal acquisition uh, regulation, and so they're very easy to do business with. So they, they used OTAs particularly for exactly that purpose that you said, to make it easier for companies to, to get on board. I mean, COVID's emergency, and they really want to do that. So the big bulk of this, this increase, this 17% that you write about, contracting obligations at HHS jumped from $26.6 billion in fiscal 19, $41.2 billion in fiscal 20, 55% increase. That's not going to stick around for uh, an extended period of time. Is it, this, is, is, this, is it fair to call this a corona bubble? Uh, I think, I think that's, that's pretty fair. I mean, it is COVID-driven. And, you know, assuming that we get a handle on this, we get a vaccine, uh, that will probably decline. Although there could be some huge contracts for vaccine production and vaccine distribution, which could still drive this. And again, I, I would expect that a lot of that could go through HHS. Some of it could maybe go through FEMA or something like that. But, you know, until we get a handle on this, there's probably more money to be had uh, in fiscal 2021. You write about the Department of Veterans Affairs increasing its contract spending from about $4.4 billion in, uh, or, or to $4.4 billion uh, in uh, 20, up about 15%. That's all primarily going one place, it looks like, Rob. Well, uh, most of it, uh, the biggest increase was for the community care program, which, as you know, gets talked about a lot, is a program where veterans can go outside the VA system because they either live too far away or there's not appointments available. And uh, President Obama pushed some of this through. President Trump has expanded this program to allow veterans to go on the uh, civilian you know, health care system. And presumably a lot of that is COVID driven. I butchered your numbers there, and I apologize, so I'll read it for the clarity of the viewer. Department of Veterans Affairs increased its contract spending about $4.4 billion in fiscal 20 over 19, an increase of about 15%. Energy Department seeing a big bump here, too. And this agency was one that surprised me in the context of all of this other spending seemingly being around COVID. Yeah, the, the DOE stuff... Um, Basically, two of the labs, the nuclear weapons labs, both increased about $2.5 billion each. You know, these labs are government uh, uh, government labs, but they're run by huge uh, contract. You know, they're contract run. One is run by, by Honeywell. Um, and so uh, a lot of money went in this. Some of that may be COVID-driven because the uh, DOE labs have huge supercomputers, and they have been sort of lending those for some COVID research. But most of it is probably related to, you know, enhancing the nuclear arsenal. 
A big whopper of an increase at the Small Business Administration. I imagine no one's surprised by that. Contracting there, you write, jumped from about $177 million in fiscal 19 to more than $1.5 billion in fiscal 20. Was this primarily just pass-through money, Rob? Well, no, actually it wasn't a pass-through money. That uh, Basically, it was driven, the SBA had to administer uh, one of these COVID relief programs for small business, and they needed help um, you know, administering that program. So they hired, there's one company that got a, over a $700 million contract, it was about 300 million, and then it got bumped up to about se over $700 million to uh, help the Small Business Administration qualify the loans and process the loans. So that money did go to a contractor. It wasn't the pass-through. The, the money itself for the loans, of course, passed through and went to, to the companies. But that contracting money went to, uh, to, to some businesses to help the Small Business Administration run the program, which was you know, bigger than they'd, anything they'd ever run in the past. We have about 30 seconds left, Rob. Is given that more stimulus is likely going to happen at some point, we think, is that money likely to continue being spent at SBA? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, there were some questions about some of these contracts that Congress and the IG had raised, but, you know, SBA will probably have to administer some more business assistance programs, and so there's, they're going to need help to do that. Rob Levinson, thanks very much. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.